You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Morning, church. Will you join with me and stand as we read God's word? We have a lot of different texts this morning. This is kind of a different sermon. Uh, we are going to be in a lot of text, and yet this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 really is the core of the sermon. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 22. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, this is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our mediator. In the name of Jesus, the one who grants us access to you. There's no other way. He is the way. God, I pray that as we approach your holy word and as we see this wonderful and beautiful and grand story of the restoration of all things, God, would you, would you wow us? Would, would, would we marvel at Christ? Lord, would we not only marvel, God, but would we fall down and worship? Lord, I pray that as we approach Jesus, our great high priest, the one who gives us access, the one who has drawn near, I pray that you would, by your spirit, cause for our own hearts to draw near. Lord, you invite us to come near because you have drawn near. And so, God, would you do that? I pray that as we open your word that you would grant illumination, that in your light we would see light, and that you would be glorified and magnified, Christ. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Every single person has deep longings and deep desires within them. All of us have deep longings to belong, for relationships, for joy, for satisfaction, for peace. Maybe you want something you've never had. Or maybe it's something that you wish you can have back. All of us have deep longings and deep desires within. We as human beings, we come from a long line of those who have hoped and longed and desired. And it all stems back to the Garden of Eden, where all of our hopes and desires and everything we've ever wanted was crushed and lost 
This is where all of these longings stem from. What was lost in the Garden of Eden? In the words of Joni Mitchell from her song Woodstock, I think she puts it well. She wrote, We are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. It's this move back toward the garden. Right? We know something's wrong. We know something's amiss. We can't sometimes put our finger on it, but we know that things need to be made right again. And there was a lot of things shattered at the Garden of Eden, but one thing that was ultimately lost, that I would argue is the biggest thing that was lost, was God himself. God's very own presence. As Adam and Eve sinned, we find them hiding when they used to be totally comfortable, actually they were fit and created to walk with God in the cool of the garden, they take from the fruit that they're commanded not to eat from and then we see them hiding. There's a separation, there's a chasm, there's a gap. God's presence lost in that moment. But as we move through the story of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, what we see is a God who is after restoring his presence to his people. And so this morning, we're going to be in a lot of different texts. And usually we're in one text because in one text, in one passage, we see one coherent unit, one story, one argument. And what I want to propose to you is that from Genesis to Revelation, it is this one big grand story of God bringing his people back to himself, the restoration of his presence to his people. So we're gonna see this in Hebrews. We're gonna get to Hebrews, right? Because the sermon series is Christ the center. And this sermon is Jesus Christ, the final priest, right? And so you might be wondering, how does Jesus as the priest have to do with the presence of God? And as we'll see from the testimony of scripture, it has everything to do with Christ's priestly role and and his presence. So in order to really understand Jesus as the priest, as the author of Hebrews has laid it out, we really need to understand this theme of God's presence. And we need to start all the way back from the beginning to the Garden of Eden. And so as we move from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus, throughout the prophets into the New Testament, we'll see this story in four chapters. First, the presence of God lost. Second, the presence of God restored. Third, the presence of God fulfilled. And fourth, the presence of God perfected. God's presence lost, restored, fulfilled, and perfected. If you want to do more reading on this kind of big, high-level, overarching storyline of the Bible, I've been really helped by David Schrock. He has some wonderful resources on priesthood, and I've leaned heavily on him. But first, we go to the text. Chapter 1, the presence of God lost. The Bible opens up with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning starts with the uncreated one who creates all things. From oceans to organisms from stars to planets, the uncreated one creating all things seen and unseen. 
on the last day of creation, God does something interesting. As you know, he does something unique in creating mankind in his very own image. Unlike any of the other creatures that he had created. Genesis 2 verse 8, we see on the last day God creating mankind in his image and then setting them and placing them in the garden, in his perfect presence. Genesis 2 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So here we see from the very beginning such intimacy. God creating man from the, from the, from the dirt. Literally, Adam literally means mud man. And he breathes life into him. And then he places him in the garden, right where he dwells, his perfect presence. And everything was so good. Everything was so good. God said it himself after each day of creation. He stands back and he looks at his creation. He says, this is good. This is good. We see God's good presence dwelling there in Eden with mankind. Everything is good until it isn't. Soon, you know this, desire rose up with Adam and Eve as they believe the serpent, the lie from the devil, and they lay hold of the lie and accept it and believe it as truth that they would be better off rejecting God's will for their life. They take from the fruit, from the tree in which God commanded them not to take. And what happens is a cascade of consequences. Sin brings about many fractured consequences, but all of it centers around death. And God said this, the the day that you eat from this tree is the day that you die. The day that you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Many things died on that day. And one of the things that died was a relationship with God. Adam and Eve go into hiding. A holy God cannot dwell with unholy sinners. It's like water and oil. And so what we see in Genesis 3, chapter 24, is God being a holy God and the consequences of sin being meted out and Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They're expelled from the garden. Verse 24, this should be on the screen. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that is the angels. He placed the angels and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They're expelled from the garden. God sets and appoints angels to guard the presence of God so that they wouldn't, they couldn't be able to get back in, and that's the consequence of sin, death of the relationship between God and man, the worst day in all of creation. And yet, God wouldn't be finished with his creation. Just like a good father is not finished with a child who messes up, God isn't finished with humanity. And so for the rest of the Bible, the rest of the story of redemption, we see God going after his creation. He's going after the restoration of his presence with his people. And so chapter two, the presence of God restored. As this story 
this thread, this theme of God's presence and him restoring it to his people continues, we see that he makes contact with certain individuals. From Noah, right, calling out Noah to be a kind of rescue of humanity where Noah walked with God. And then he covenants with Abraham. He calls Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans. He covenants with Abraham. He covenants with Isaac. He covenants and, he, and he, he has this relationship with Jacob and his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see God making these moves toward his creation. But it isn't until Exodus where we really see God's restorative plan of his presence to his people really take shape. So God's people end up, as we learned in the Genesis account, they end up in Egypt, right? And then 400 years later, they end up enslaved in Egypt. And uh, just to make a long story short, what happens is God uses Moses. He raises up Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and toward the promised land. And at, before they get to the promised land, it took a long time because of their rebellion, right? But at Mount Sinai, what God does is he gives Moses and the people of Israel instructions for what it looks like to live and worship God. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. God gives Moses and the people of Israel the law. And part of the law, part of these instructions that God gave to the people was instructions for building a tabernacle. Now stay with me, this is really important when it relates to God's presence because these were instructions for how to get back to Eden, so to speak. The tabernacle was the place where God's presence would reside. All of the tabernacle would shake like an earthquake with God's presence, but it was, it was the holy of holies the epicenter of God's presence, which would reside over the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat, between the cherubim, between the angels, overlaid with gold, where God's presence would reside. And and God gave the people of Israel instructions for how to build this tabernacle, how to get back into the garden, so to speak. Exodus 25, verse 22. There I will meet you, And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That's why the tabernacle is also referred to as the tent of meeting. This is the meeting place with God. This is where you go to meet with God. But what's really stunning about the tabernacle was all of the imagery and all of the carvings and all of the symbolism that was laid into the instructions. This was this tent of meeting. This was a place where there was a ton of Edenic undertones in the symbolism. What I mean by that is this was like a mini Eden 2.0. Many pastors and scholars have remarked on the type of imagery that we see in the tabernacle from all of the gold that overlaid everything, just like there was a ton of gold in Eden, to all of the fruit, even on the priestly garments, there was fruit there. There was all of these precious stones on the ephod of the priest, just like all of the precious stones in Eden. 
But one of the things that really stands out here is that there was actually an angel that was embroidered on the veil that separated the holy of holies from the other parts of the tabernacle. Just like Eden, an angel guarding God's presence. Genesis 26, verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, and it shall be made with cherubim. Once again, angels. It shall be made with angels skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. So God graciously gives them a mini Eden again as he is about restoring his presence to his people. But here's the rub, the same problem still exists at Mount Sinai that existed back in Eden. It's actually, it's super interesting. At the end of Exodus, after the people of Israel are are given these instructions for building the tabernacle, and after the tabernacle is built and set up, Moses and the people of Israel are locked out. They can't get in. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, right? So God resides here on the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, because God was there. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that's how Exodus ends. If that's the end of the Bible, this is, this is just like the end of Genesis 3. It's hopeless. And yet it's not hopeless because then we get to Leviticus. So Exodus is this beautiful instruction for how to build this house, this temple where God would dwell. And then Leviticus, we're given keys. The people of Israel are actually given keys to be able to access the place where God dwells. And that's where we get into the priesthood. That's where the priests come into play. And there's so much to say about the priests and all of their roles and all of their functions, but it's, it's so essential to note that at the heart of what the priests did was they mediated the presence of God to the people of God. They represented the people to God And when they came out of God's presence, they mediated God's presence and blessed the people as the priests would come out. What's also essential to underscore is that this had to do with sacrifices. Blood had to be shed. One of the main functions of of an Old Testament priest was to make sacrifices for sin. And the reason for all the sacrifice is because God is a holy and righteous God. And the consequences, as we learn from Genesis, the consequences of sin is death. The day you eat of this tree, eat of this fruit, you will surely die. So the wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay. Blood has to be shed. It has to be costly. It can't just be swept under the rug. And so God's people are given the Levitical priesthood this sacrificial system for how to deal with sin. And this is gracious of the Lord to give this key to be able to have access 
to him again, to walk once again with him in the cool of the garden. So look what happens after Aaron, the first priest, makes some of the first sacrifices recorded in Leviticus. This will be up on the screen. Leviticus chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. It works. That's what this text is all about. It works. They're actually allowed in. The priests go in to the, the, the most holy place representing bringing in the sin of the people, making a sacrifice and coming out and giving this assurance of pardon, blessing the people of Israel and saying, our sins are covered. So therefore, the presence of God is restored. In the third book of the Bible, we see the presence of God restored, but it was only a partial fulfillment, a partial restoration. And we see that the presence of God isn't restored completely, but it's, it's pretty flawed. And one of the reasons behind the flawed nature of the priesthood is the priests, those who are making sacrifices. So if you remember, the people of Israel are, are at, at Mount Sinai. They receive, Moses receives the law on the mountain, and it's like just a couple chapters chapters over where Aaron is making this golden calf and breaking the second commandment of God. So right from the start, Aaron the priest is messing up. We see his sons, Nahab and, and Abihu, they're offering up strange sacrifices, not according to what God has spoken. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see Eli the priest and his sons specifically his sons, doing really wicked and heinous things. They're taking the sacrifices that the people are giving them and they're taking it for themselves and they're sleeping with the woman at the tent of meeting. And so there's this devolving thing that happens with the priesthood. The prophets speak about it. God sent Hosea to speak a stunning rebuke against the priesthood and here's what he says in Hosea chapter six, verses seven and nine. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. God sent Micah to also send a message to the priest on what they were doing. And Malachi, Malachi gets really graphic. He says, the sacrifices that the priests are making are like dung and I'm gonna smear it on their face. That's what Malachi says. Malachi chapter two, verses one through three. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you did not lay it to heart Behold, I will rebuke your offering and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And that's exactly what happens to the people of Israel. 
they're taken away. They're exiled out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, into Babylon, into Assyria. And does this remind you of, of another exile that happened? Right? They're there in God's presence, but because of their sin, they're expelled. They're pushed out. They're driven out into Babylon and Assyria, just like Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. So the same problem keeps happening. God's plan to restore his presence with his people. It continues because his people are faithless. But just like in the Garden of Eden, God is a faithful God even when his people are faithless. And he, though he is continually abandoned by his people, God never abandons his own. And this brings us to chapter three, the presence of God fulfilled. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter one, verses 21 to 23. This is our call to worship. This text is so pivotal because there's 400 years of silence where the people of Israel may have been thinking, has God given up on us? And yet light pierces through the darkness. Matthew 1, verses 21 to 23. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus, God would finally and ultimately restore his presence to his people by coming down himself. Not coming to a tent or to a temple, but being the tent, this new tent, the new meeting place between God and man, Jesus Christ, the mediator. Right there in Bethlehem, in this manger among sinners and shepherds, God would take up his new residence. This was the holy of holies. God with us. This is why we are celebrating Advent, the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ his presence, God drawing near. But we can't stop there because Jesus, the son of God, he came, and this is good news, but if he only came in this instance and didn't carry out the reason for which he came, this would have been good news for those people back then, 2,000 years ago, that God is with us, but, but now he's gone, and there's no hope for humanity but Jesus came to take on flesh so that he would do something with that flesh. He came to completely restore God's presence. And that's, this is the way he did it, through his priestly atoning work at the cross. So in the incarnation, we're already getting to Easter. Jesus took on flesh so that he would take that flesh to the cross and be crucified This is the way that God completely, ultimately restores his presence to his people. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter nine as we continue. So Jesus 
Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, as we see what Jesus does with this body. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. When Jesus ascended the hill of his crucifixion, what he was doing was he was moving past the veil, so to speak, into the holy of holies. He is our great high priest who enters into the very presence of God to make a sacrifice. And what's amazing about this gospel story is that Jesus doesn't come with a lamb or a calf or an animal. He comes as the lamb of God and he brings himself. In Jesus, the perfect priest, he brings himself because his blood is sufficient. The blood of bulls and goats was gracious of God to provide. But this sacrificial system was so bloody. I can just imagine the stench of death in this old covenant. It was gracious to cover over sin, but the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin like Christ's own blood can, which is why he offered up his body once, one time for all. That is why, as we read in Hebrews two weeks ago, that he, as the perfect priest, sits down at the right hand of the Father. There's no more sin to atone for. There's no more sin to be forgiven for those who are in Christ. All of it, past, present, and future, has been nailed to the cross. Jesus sits down. The work is finished. The work is done. And as the text says, He secured an eternal salvation, an eternal salvation. This is the fulfillment of God's presence. We're not looking for another. This is why Jesus is the final priest. He's the final priest. And what's the result of such payment? That Jesus Christ, the second eternal person of the Trinity, takes on flesh makes a sacrifice of his own body on the cross, raises from the dead, vindicating his atoning work, what's the result? Well, we have access now. And this is the whole point. This ties everything together, this whole theme of God's presence to his people. We now have access in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Stop right there. The last text, Jesus enters into the holy places by his blood. This text says, 
Therefore, we now get to do the same thing. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near. God's plan to restore his presence with his people is fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, let us draw near. God has drawn near to us. Therefore, let us draw near. Sam Amadi, he makes this beautiful illustration. It's, it's from the text, but I have to share it. The angel that was guarding the presence of God with the flaming sword back in Genesis and the angel that was guarding the presence of God in the tabernacle, in the temple, that same veil, that same temple curtain was torn in two. When Jesus died, remember Luke chapter 23, when Jesus offers up his body, his atoning sacrifice, so that God's people would be in his presence, what happens is the veil, the curtain of the temple, the same curtain that has the embroidered angel on it, it tears from top to bottom. No more guarding. No more separation. The curtain totally torn in two. Access granted. Let us draw near. And as we are in this Advent season, and one week away from Christmas, I think the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God wants to be with you. God really wants to be with you. Look at what great lengths he took to be with you. He sent servants, he sent prophets, but he sent his only son to be with you. Everything we long for, everything we desire, peace and shalom and all of our relationships which may be torn about, desires for those to be mended, desires for satisfaction and comfort and joy, all of that found in the Christ child, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. And here's how the story ends. Here's chapter four, Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four. Jesus is our mediator. He brings us into the presence of God. And that's a reality right now for us who have trusted in Christ, who've believed upon Emmanuel, God with us. And we still live in this present evil age. We're not there yet. So listen, listen to God's perfect presence. Listen to God's restorative plan of his presence perfected. Revelation chapter 21, verses one to four. John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is a good ending. That's a really good ending. Everything we've ever wanted, everything we've ever longed for, God with us. The dwelling place of God is with man. So this Christmas season, May our hearts, may our our longings and desires and affections for a restored Eden, may it be found in Christ alone. We need not look to another. He's the final priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Thank you for this wonderful plan that was laid before the foundations of the earth. And of course it was. Who could come up with this except you? This is not the concoction of man. You have been about restoring your presence to sinful people, forgiving your creation, though we don't deserve it mediating your presence, giving us yourself, and doing it all in Christ. Lord, would our hearts rest in Emmanuel? That is my prayer. Would we rest in Emmanuel? With all of our anxieties and all of our anxious toil and all of our fear, God, would we take it and turn it and bring it all to you, the one who hears us right now, the one who's who's seated at your hand, who is our mediator, who is our great high priest, Jesus Christ the Lord. Thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.